all the adults around me were smokers, drinkers, and users. My life growing up as a child, I guess the one word that often comes to mind is chaos. I had my first sip of alcohol when I was seven or eight years old. I loved wine. I learned how to roll joints when I was about nine or 10. Every place from CBGB's to Danceteria, the tunnel, I never felt like I was one of them until I started drinking and doing drugs. I partied a lot with my gay friends and the shit that we did was unreal. I'm Anthony. And I'm Tyson. We're recovering addicts. This is a podcast about journeys from the darkness of addiction to the sunlight of sobriety. I am a native New Yorker. I was born and raised in mostly in Queens, New York, but I did spend a lot of time. I went to school in Manhattan in the 80s. My life growing up as a child, I guess the one word that often comes to mind is chaos. There was a lot of chaos in my household, in my family. Um, I was raised by a very loving, but a very chaotic single mother in the 70s. And she was young and attractive. And she lived every bit of that lifestyle (laughs) that the 70s offered a young, attractive woman who, um, so my parents married when they were quite young. My mother went from her father's house to my father's house at a time where women didn't work. They, you know, made a house. So that's what she did. She had two children, my sister and myself, very young. She separated and divorced with my father, very young. Um, So yeah, my, um, all the adults around me were smokers, drinkers, and users. Now, I'm not going to qualify anybody else in my life as an addict, except for one um, family member, my uncle, who was clearly an addict, and he was a big part of my life as well. Also very loving, but very much living in the chaos of addiction. So I grew up surrounded with substances and watching adults really enjoying themselves, actually, with these substances. And none of it was behind closed doors. It was a real hippy-dippy kind of atmosphere that my mom, um, you know, it was not unlike, I think, a lot of parenting back then, you know, where everything was out in the open. So I would say I, um, I had my first sip of alcohol when I was seven or eight years old. I loved wine and I would sample it out of anybody's glass. I learned how to roll joints when I was about nine or 10. I would do that for the adults and it cracked them up. So I loved being a form of entertainment at the parties. And that is exactly what I was. When I think about it today, of course, I can see how inappropriate it was, but as a child, nothing made me happier than letting my uncle's girlfriend at the time dress me up in, you know, 70s garb and put her blue eyeshadow on me and pink lipstick and bangle bracelets so that I could help host the party. And I got all sorts of attention and I served alcohol and rolled joints. And um, yeah, so again, as 
twisted as it sounds to me today. That's not how it felt when I was a little girl. And so it actually fed me positive attention. And so guess what? That laid the, the groundwork, the, the framework, I would say, for me using regularly at a very young age. You know, I would say anywhere between 13 and 15, it just became a way of life for me. Growing up in New York City in the 80s, my friends and I literally were served by the time we were 16 or 17 with the absolute worst fake IDs you've ever seen in your life. And it just didn't matter. It was New York. And if we looked the right way, which we did, and showed up with a fake ID, we were in. We were in. And so- and they loved to have you. I lo they loved having you, I'm sure. Adorable underage chicks in their establishments. This is no joke. And so, I mean, we did the club scene. We did the club scene. And um, it was it was a high, you know, every time we got in someplace and we knew we were 16 or 17 and here we were every place from CBGB's to Danceteria, the tunnel, everything. We were just a part of that. Wow. God, you know, if we had a different show going on here, I would really dive into some questions about the CBGB because that it was, it was is exciting. magic. Max is Kansas City. I was in all of it at a very, very young age. I'm 53. So just to get a gauge of, you know, what year this was when I was in high school, right? So we're talking about the early 80s, pretty much that all of this was going on. It was simply normal. That's what I'm saying. It was simply normal for me. Honest, I didn't have consequences. I really didn't, you know, because we were all doing it. We were all doing it. I mean, eventually, yes, you know, I had some emotional issues when I was a teenager. Most of that, you know, was to do with my chaotic family life and some early on, you know, traumas, which I can look back on now and say. And um, I always felt different than my peers because I was different from my peers. I did feel like a little adult in a child's body, and I, I freaked out other adults because they found me really precocious, overly mature for my age. I had absolutely no respect for authority. So that goes for the teachers. Education-wise, you know, I was kind of a gifted student, and I went to a high school for gifted students called Stuyvesant in New York City, but I didn't last there because I had absolutely no respect for their rules. So I guess that was one consequence. But at the same time, I still landed on my feet. I landed in a different type of school, um, also for gifted kids, more focused on the humanities and the creative side. And I actually did thrive there. Ultimately, I didn't even finish college because I ended up getting a job working at a fashion designer's showroom when I was 20 years old. I was the coffee girl, receptionist, all that stuff. And I got hooked. I got hooked on that life. Because it was a very, it was a life of excess, right? It was all about, we worked really, really hard and we partied harder than that, you know? Yeah. Bunch of beautiful, well-dressed, well-connected, right. addictive personalities with you keys to the it. kingdom. <laughs> you got it. And it made me feel really special that I was a part of it. I started making a lot of money at a stupidly young age. And so I was hooked and I never looked back. I absolutely never looked back. And so the industry suited 
everything I was used to, all of that chaos, everything moving a million miles an hour, just like my brain always moved a million miles an hour. And I think as a child, my first addiction was to fantasy, okay? Like I fantasized about being famous. I fantasized about being living in all these different exotic places and having amazing friends, like, you know, all of that stuff. Like I envisioned this big life for myself. Living in that fashion world, I felt like I could reach out and touch all that stuff. But at the same time, I happened to know that I always felt less than, I never felt like I was one of them until I started drinking and doing drugs. And then I would feel very comfortable in my own skin. I did suffer from social anxiety and the substances put me completely at ease. And I would forget all about any of that stuff. I would forget that I was just a skinny girl from Queens, that I wasn't really one of them as I sort of rubbed elbows with the beautiful people. And that's what I did. There was a whole other series of clubs that started opening up that I became a part of that scene. It was a place called Nell's. That was a really big deal back then. I actually, I got married at a young age, just like my mom, funny enough. It's because I met a man when I was underage and I was lying about my age as I did in a bar, of course. We started seeing each other and eventually I had to come clean. He was six years older. He broke up with me as he should have. And then, but then ultimately we got, we started dating for real when I was 19 and we ended up getting married. We bought the house. We had like the dream. I was commuting into the city at the time. And as my career grew, we grew apart. And so I I dismantled that marriage pretty quickly because I would rather stay out drinking than find my way home. I would rather stay with my girlfriends in the city than find my way home. And so years of that, you know, we ended up divorcing and I ended up actually living on my own for the first time in the city Mm -hmm. because I had lived with him. I think I took him hostage, I would have to say, because he had a life that I never had. He had this family life that looked from the outside, like the family that I never had, you know, the parents that were still married, the same friends since grade school, not chaotic you know, the very opposite of mine. And I think uh, when I look back on it, I wanted what he had. But at the same time, I wasn't finished growing up. And I certainly didn't have my feet on the ground. Definitely my drinking and drugging played a big part of that. And I still wanted to be somewhere else and someone else at all times, right? I think, you know, my disease where it took me was constantly seeking, seeking all sorts of things. Collecting and consuming is how I remember it. You know, it was all about having the right apartment, having the right clothes, having the right, you know, being on the right guest list somewhere. All of that absolute bullshit, you know, which at the end of the day doesn't mean anything. You know, the longer I lived that life, I would say the more spiritually void I became. Everything was incredibly superficial. I ended up at that point with a guy who worked in the restaurant business, which is also fueled by alcohol and cocaine. And that became my way of life, alcohol and cocaine. (laughs) That was it for me. That was it for me. 
And then, you know, other substances, because I was in the club scene, I could really ingest a lot of stuff for a small <laughs> person. I was tiny, tiny. I, I mean, I, I partied a lot with my gay friends and the shit that we did was unreal. I mean, <laughs> chemicals that I would put into my body just, you know, I don't have to get too much into the war stories here, but, you know, I mean, ecstasy became a really big thing and um, ketamine and all this other stuff. We would uh, grind it up and, and make something called trail mix that we would bump all night long with cocaine and, and heroin. It was pretty much a free-for-all. It was a free-for-all. Yeah, yeah. But, and here's the rub. I, I had this illusion of control. I had this illusion of control because I was watching some of my friends start to fall apart by now. I'm in my 30s, right? It's going to happen eventually. And I was starting to see it. I had a friend who absolutely ended up a total slave to the cocaine, you know, 24-7. And she had to, eventually she landed in a rehab, thank God, had to get sober to save her own life. You know, she was my best friend, but I, I saw it as her problem. I didn't see it as mine because, you know, I took days off. <laughs> I, I wasn't a daily user. So I had this illusion of control, this illusion that because my body wasn't necessarily addicted, that I was fine, that I wasn't an addict. I was a binge user. I was a binge user. I would wake up the next day destroyed with my hangovers. And I would most of the time go to work. I mean, we would we would nurse each other through hangovers. I did it as a boss. I would nurse my own my own staff. My staff would would protect me. I used to nap in the in the showrooms with my bosses because that's this is how we lived our life. So it was always acceptable to show up to work destroyed and hung over. The difference was I didn't continue using while some of them did. Some yeah. some of them would come in and start with the hair of the dog. And I said, oh, she's the one with the problem. She's the alcoholic. She's the drug addict, right? I was fine. I had this illusion that because I could stop for a day or two until the next party, that I was fine. I can see today that that was an illusion of control, but that's how I continued for many years. 9-11 happened and it changed a lot of people's perspectives, including my own. I looked at my life, it, it started to feel pretty empty. My career was affected at that time. My relationship broke up at that time and I was very depressed. I was very, very depressed. I was drinking a lot more. And then I met someone. I met someone who was going to become my husband and the father of my son. We met in 2002 and we decided to move in together very quickly because this is how I, I think this is how I led my life, you know, for the most part, very impulsively. So yes, we impulsively left New York City together, moved in together um, in Hoboken, which is right across the Hudson River. I made the conscious decision that when I left New York City, that I was gonna leave the drugs behind. And I did, I actually did. I left all my phone numbers of my drug dealers. Wow. I, I left the club scene, I left all of it. And I started you know, to live a life that I thought was appropriate you know, for a woman my age 
who was then engaged and planning this this life and planning to start a family. So I was, you know, drinking like a regular person, and I'm using finger quotes right now. Right. <laughs> um, but my idea of drinking like a regular person meant still that I drank until I was drunk every time and then some. Okay. I I never I somehow never realized that I had lost the ability at that point in time to have one or two drinks and stop. There was a time in my life that I could, and I recall doing that. I recall going out after work and having a couple of drinks and going home or other nights drinking to excess. At this point, it became really apparent to me that I couldn't do that anymore. And without the drugs, it started to get really sloppy, really quickly, yeah. really quickly. And my husband at the time, now it was no secret who I was. He knew exactly who he married. However, I don't think he really got it um, until he saw me in action a few times in ways that were no longer just the cute party girl that were, that were really, you know, scary times where I would leave my key in the door, one shoe in the hallway, and pass out on the couch, times where he couldn't find me, where I was out with my friends, not answering texts, not answering and just disappearing, as I would do sometimes. Little by slowly, my behavior, you know, was definitely red flags. And, you know, remembering that I really didn't have any consequence because I was in a relationship prior to that with someone who partied exactly like I did. And then I was living alone for a very long time. You know, so I never I never had to explain the way I drank or the way I drugged or the way anything to anybody until now. Suddenly, I was accountable to somebody and I started to lie. I started to become a really expert liar. I started to drink secretly. I would drink before he would see me drink, right? So that it would appear that I only had a certain amount to drink. Right. And then I started doing the craziest things like hiding booze in the house in, you know, places that I could drink secretly. Right. So I was when I look back today, clearly an out of control alcoholic. Well, then I got pregnant with my son. I stopped drinking completely for nine months. And um, interestingly enough, it wasn't hard. And the reason I believe it wasn't hard it, two things, because I was pregnant and I knew that I had a responsibility to this baby. And secondly, I knew I would drink again. And I knew when I drank again, I would drink the way I wanted to. Because, yeah, I remember, I do remember this. I remember that after three months, somebody said, oh, you can have a glass of wine, right? So I remember starting to have this glass of wine and I felt it right away. I felt, you know, what we now know is the phenomenon of craving when you start and you have that one drink when you are an alcoholic, I felt it. And I stopped drinking because I knew that I couldn't possibly drink the way I wanted to, you know, pregnant with this baby. So I knew that it wasn't possible for me to have one glass of red wine. So I did not drink for nine months, you know, actually a little less than that, because my son was premature. After my son was born, I had a health crisis really, really quickly. I was diagnosed with very severe postpartum depression and anxiety 
which really leveled me. And then it turns out that I actually had a thyroid disease that went untreated for nine months. So I won't get into the gory details, but I will tell you, it was one of the most horrific experiences of my life. I was, I stopped sleeping completely. My anxiety was through the roof or I was in a corner crying and completely unable to function. So they put me on all sorts of wonderful medication for that. And because I was not diagnosed properly for nine months, some of the symptoms lifted, I have to say, like from the medication, some of the worst of the depression lifted, but what stuck with me was the anxiety. So I was, they, they gave me Ativan, you know, that's a real special one. It's, it's a benzo. And they told me to take it as needed. And when I was complaining that I still had a lot of anxiety, my doctor recommended that I be more liberal with the, Ad- with the um, Ativan. So I was, I was extremely liberal with the Ativan. I also started drinking again. I stopped, uh, nursing my son rather quickly because I had to. So once that was off, I was able to drink and I was able to drink the way I wanted to. And boy, did I. I was off to the races and I was drinking a lot of alcohol, mixing it with all sorts of medication that you shouldn't be mixing alcohol with. (laughs) And I finally hit a crisis from that. And I ended up in the hospital. My first hospitalization where I had to come clean about how much I was drinking, the medications I was taking. I ended up in the hospital because I overdosed on Ativan and had to have my stomach pumped, which was the first time anything like that had ever happened to me because, you know, I never thought of myself as somebody who ever overdid it. I felt that I could control my use. And at this point, I couldn't. I had no idea what I was doing. To myself. So I was intervened upon after that. My family, my best friend, I was given this choice, you know, get sober or there are going to be consequences, you know, consequences involving my child, involving my marriage, things that scared the living shit out of me. So the good news was when I was in the hospital, they finally did some blood work and they discovered my thyroid disease. And so from there, I was getting the treatment that I actually needed all along. I started going to AA meetings and I stopped drinking. So I started to go to AA meetings and I started to hear some very familiar stories. I immediately knew that I belonged there, yet I wasn't quite ready to surrender all of it. Once I found out how sick I really was, started to come off the benzos, got some mental clarity after three months of not drinking. I convinced myself and I convinced everybody around me that um, it wasn't sobriety that I needed. I wasn't an addict. It was this thyroid disease that was causing me to self-medicate, right? To self-medicate the symptoms that were not properly being handled by the doctors, blah, blah, blah. Basically, I talked my way out of it. Once again, I got the green light that I could start drinking again. And I think I behaved myself. I I did some controlled drinking. I did for a very short period of time. And then it all started again. The lying, the sneaking, the hiding. When I think back on it now, my behavior, drinking when my son was napping, he was still pretty little. He was a toddler. When he would wake up, I would drink iced coffee and pretend everything was fine and, you know, take him out to the park. I was living a double life, you know. 
I was appearing to be this put together mother who by then I wasn't working because of my health issues. I never did go back to work. So I was staying home with him. And so I had all this ample time when my husband was at work to drink the way I wanted to drink. And little by slowly, he started recognizing the signs. All was not okay, right? I guess it took about a year. It took about a year before I was given that ultimatum. The ultimatum was, once again, get sober or there are going to be consequences and it would involve my son and my marriage. And at this point, I was terrified. I was, I was really scared when I heard myself yelling at my husband on his voicemail and I was yelling at him, spewing lies, literally, about that he was blowing all this out of proportion, that I wasn't drinking this much, that I wasn't doing, I was just lying through my teeth and blaming him. And I don't know, I guess this was a moment of clarity that I heard my voice. I heard this insane woman screaming into a phone, you know, with like my sleeping toddler somewhere in the house. And I heard myself and I had this moment of clarity and I hung up the phone. I remembered that there was a women's meeting. It was a Wednesday night. And I remembered that there was a women's meeting in Hoboken that night at 7.30. I uh, called my ex-husband back and I just very calmly said, I need to make sure that you're home so that I can go to this meeting. And I walked into that meeting and I completely fell apart. I just completely fell apart and asked them to help me. I just said, help me. I don't know what to do, but I just know I need help. And I know I can't do this by myself. So these women, I'll tell you what, they saved my life. They saved my life simply by showing up for me. I didn't get sober my first go around. It took me six months to get 90 days, but I kept coming back. I kept coming back, right? I had two slips, which, you know, the second one, I had almost... I had almost 90 days. Yeah, that's right. I had almost 90 days and I felt great. In fact, I felt better than I had in years. And it was a beautiful spring day. What I decided to do to celebrate was, you know, have a glass of wine, just one glass of wine. <laughs> and it just, you know, like as quickly, it just, and of course I ended up with a bottle of vodka in my purse, hiding it in the bathroom, just all the disgustingness you know, doing the same thing when my, my husband called me out, I'm not drunk, you know, but thank God I woke up the next morning, called my sponsor and said, I have never felt more powerless in my life than I actually do today, more powerless than I've ever felt, knowing that I could string together that amount of time and feel pretty amazing and end up exactly where I was, just like flipping a light switch my brain was so sick, like so completely sick. And it was in that moment, you know, that I realized that, you know, that this, this went so much deeper than just making a commitment to stay sober. My brain and my body were so diseased and it was going to take a lot of work. So I did. I dove into the work of the 12 steps and it really set me right you know, for that first year. 
And then after that, I embarked on a journey. Well, I had had a yoga practice in my life before. And while I was getting sober in that first year, the only place I didn't feel like jumping out of my own skin was on my yoga mat. I was still pretty unhappy and uncomfortable, but I knew I wanted to be sober. It wasn't that. But my body was was not feeling it. <laughs> my brain yeah. was always going a hundred million miles an hour. I just I was, as we like to say, irritable and discontent, uncomfortable all the time. And the only time I felt comfortable was when I was on my yoga mat. So I started to do a lot of yoga. I decided I wanted to do a teacher training because I wanted to go deeper into the somatics of healing through yoga, right? Healing. So yoga is a practice that's designed to heal and balance the body, the mind, and the spirit. Addiction is a disease of the body, mind, and spirit. It disconnects us, right? Yoga connects us. Now, the 12 steps certainly were the beginning, and I couldn't do any of this. I could not have done any of this without the 12 steps, but... The next several years, embracing the yoga practice, somewhere in the middle of my first training, I realized that this is what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I wanted to teach yoga. I wanted to share the healing aspect because I started to connect the dots between my sobriety and the practice of yoga. The eight limb path of yoga and the 12 steps of recovery, are they go hand in hand. They're like married. Um, I found my way to a teacher named Tommy Rosen, who started a program called Recovery 2.0. And then I was out of the gate. I did a training called the Yoga of Recovery at the Shivananda Ashram, which was mind-blowing and life-altering. Then I did another training called Y12SR with Nikki Myers, the Yoga for 12-Step Recovery. So it just kept evolving and shifting until um, I was ready to start teaching others. And that's what I did. And that's what I still do to this day. I own a yoga studio in Jersey City. So it, you know, it started with me wanting to just share this practice with people in recovery. And it's evolved to me wanting to share this practice with everybody because everybody needs this kind of healing, right? Everybody's got traumas everybody's got addictions. They're just not all as obvious as mine. <laughs> you know, mine are right. pretty obvious. Same here. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, but I mean, everybody seeks pleasure to numb the feelings of being uncomfortable. So wherever that takes you, it takes you. So getting to the root of why am I so fucking uncomfortable in my mind, in my body, and in my spirit. And yoga is such an incredible tool. The Yoga Sutras, which are our texts, the ancient texts that describe the yogic path. So here's how they start. They start with yoga begins in the now. In other words, the practice of yoga begins when you're able to live in your present moment, to be fully committed to being present. The second sutra says, yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. So in other words, that mind that sends you into those racing thoughts, right? Those patterns of addiction. And then the third tenet says, the third sutra, it is then that the seeker abides in his own true nature. So your own true nature found through yoga 
is literally removing the things that are not authentic, the things that are not you, so that you're whole again, you're complete. So it's not about fixing or changing you or making you a better person. It's about bringing you home to yourself. Drugs and alcohol take us away from all of that. They disconnect us from our true selves. They disconnect us from our loved ones. They disconnect us, um, you know, till we become these lonely, isolated, spiritless people who are kind of showing up in the world with a smile, but we're dying inside. You know, for me, this has been everything. It was during one of my trainings, I think it was with Nikki, Nikki Myers. So I guess it was about um, eight years ago that I heard this phrase, the issues live in our tissues that we hold pain, we hold trauma, we hold unprocessed emotions in our bodies, literally. There is a somatic healing that can take place through yoga. Now, it's not exclusive to yoga. You can find this somatic healing in other practices, but yoga is one of them, specifically yin yoga, holding poses and breathing. So let me just preface by saying, my worst nightmare for most of my life was sitting still. Seriously. I always ran a million miles an hour. Holy shit. And yep. my original yoga practice ran a million miles an hour 25 years ago. I was very attracted to power yoga, fast moving, ashtanga, all of that stuff. Bam. I burn a million calories and my body was, you know, tight as a drum. Perfect. So that's what I was always attracted to. And I slowed it down quite a bit in recovery. It was through the advice of some very, very, very wise teachers who said, you got to slow this shit down. You have to be with yourself. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. And I kept doing it because I got some other sage advice from one of my first sponsors. And I repeat it all the time to my sponsees. You're never going to get sober until you start doing the shit that you don't want to do. Okay. And I did, I spent the better part of 40 years of my life doing exactly what I wanted to do. Mom. Okay. Yeah. And so when I finally made my way into the rooms and I found some much needed humility, some much needed feeling of, of powerlessness of, I never forget the first time I heard somebody in a meeting say, if you're new, shut up and listen. And I was so offended, like, who the hell are you to tell me to shut up and listen? But I get it. it had I walked out and not shut up and listen, I, I wouldn't have gotten what I got. And that that humility that I desperately needed. Oh, my God. So so that was a big deal for me to listen to other people, to take suggestions. Jesus Christ, to not think I had it all figured out for the first time in my life. I come from a long line of people who think they have it all figured out, you know, that think they're the smartest people in the room. And I kind of used to think that about myself. And today I know better. And it's actually a big relief. It's actually, it, it unburdens me to not have to feel that way anymore. To, to acknowledging there's something bigger than you. Oh my God. And that there are so many people who know better or, or have like great ideas that I should listen to, you know, all the things that I don't know so many things that I don't know. And, um, you know, that was a big part of my journey on my during my trainings. You know, I never finished anything in my whole life. I gave up on all of my education, 
so that I could have the, you know, these jobs and, and I would, you know, bounce from job to job. I would find, you know, more money, more prestige, a bigger label, you know, a sexier apartment, this, that, like I never finished anything in my life other until I got sober and started this path on my training. And I never stopped until I got all of my advanced certifications probably more certifications than anybody really needs, honestly, <laughs> because I was like so excited and so hungry for more knowledge and, and to, to see how much there was that I didn't know. So I, I encourage people today who are getting sober, whatever their path is, whether it's a traditional 12-step program, whether it's something non-traditional, to really address at a certain point the somatic healing that you can you can use your body your physical body to escape the bondage of addiction you know start grew up being a an athlete it was kind of the only one thing the only coping skill in my life and over the years so i then quickly you know when i looked to get sober that was kind of where my natural instinct leaned toward was working out more, doing more physical things because I had no clue how to meditate back then or sit still like you said. I mean, your your story resonated with me in a way that was so mirror image to my sort of progression. I mean, to the point that's crazy is that I actually did exactly what you did in your journey in the exact place called Hoboken. That's ah, a great place. It's a great place, and I love how you cross the river, right, to leave everything behind. It's a great place to get sober. It's an even better place to. Well, I failed miserably getting sober there, but I had played. I played house about it. It was yeah, fun. yeah. Um, <laughs> we may have run into each other in the rooms then at some point, but but I get well, your story in so many ways. I thought was so interesting about well, in in for me, of course, because obviously, like a lot of humans, I'm an egomaniac. I'm like, wow, that's just like me. Um, <laughs> But first of all, rolling joints. I always was really good at rolling joints. No, I'm kidding. I'm all right. But the part about growing up as this kid who was getting all of these sort of kudos, applause, sort of being around the adults, that was a huge part of of my upbringing. And this uh, gifted theme as well, which I think ties in so nicely to a sort of ego requirement for being a good alcoholic like myself, where, you know. Heck they yeah. give you that nice little insulation. And, and you said something in there that said you felt when you became, you know, you got that job in the fashion scene and, and you were, you know, making money, you're about 20 years old. All of a sudden you, you felt really special because you were a part of it and you had that, that life of excess and, and that extra money. There's, there's a kind of a, a fork in the road for me that's it's just like that. And I think there's, there's something very interesting about that reality. Have you reflected on that before of where you kind of are like, start to really go all in on like, never being content with the present moment in a way, maybe? Absolutely. It was never enough, you know, and in, in Buddhism, you know, this is, this is a, a very, um, one of the tenets is when you're always seeking, you're setting yourself up to never be satisfied, never be satisfied. It's always, I'll be happy when, I'll be successful when, you know, I was always looking at other people to, you know, to see what they had. That's going to look really good on me. You know, that life is going to look good on me. I, I had no idea what I really wanted. I had no idea who I really was. I was looking at other people to define 
what looked good. And one thing you said that was really interesting is the uh, binge user. Yeah. You called it a binge user instead of a you, – and you were blind. You said uh, the illusion of control because the reason I'm bringing this up is because I did the exact same thing. Anthony beautifully calls it dragging himself across rock bottom. Yeah. Basically, have done the same where, you know, for many years I would do exactly like you. You know, I would point to my career. I would point to something and I would say, look, I take a day off. I – I'm not a, you know, I'm not waking up chugging vodka, but binge user was, it's just such a great way. And then your ego can infinitely say, oh, come on. There was that time I took this, you know, took a week or a month or whatever. Yeah. So great quote there, illusion of control. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not medically trained in any way, but having gone through my own addictions in, in, in the sunshine now, and you always have to keep working. And I just want to put that out there as an axiom. But the one thing for me that I've leaned into, and it, it sounds like you've done the same thing. And I, I love hearing that because for me, it's about writing a new playbook and creating new routines. And the somatic approach for you at yoga was boxing was everything for me. I don't go get punched in the face. I just go to the title boxing and do the great workouts. And I go five, six days a week. And it literally... It was the 180 difference for me uh, mm-hmm. in terms of it, it was able to blow out all that negative energy and then replace it with this positive, wonderful feeling. It was everything. And it, it, it gave me the ability to lean on something positive, creating a new routine, something to systematically get up for instead of literally I would get up in the morning and my, my routine was going to find the bag of blow that I hid and rip two or three key bumps. Right, <laughs> right. And, yeah. and now... A couple of years later, I'm, I'm happy to say that I get up in the morning and I lace up my shoes and go box. And it's it's tremendous. And I believe – some. I think that you're right. The spiritual, the emotional, the mental, and the somatic, the body approach, you have to do all of that, whatever that means to the person. And I think that, that the blend is different you know, for everybody. But for me, it's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's like you can't be fully integrated without that. I mean, you it, yeah. it's, it seems so obvious. It's like we live in these bodies, right? So exactly. Um, exactly. Gee, I wonder what's life like now. I mean, I don't want to make any assumptions, but it sounds like you're excited to start your day every day and lead your life with and through yoga for yourself and others. I'm. Could you explain a little bit about what living in the sunlight is like for you? Because this this is a wonderful story, and I do have to say, you must. Are you professionally trained? I'm going to have to do zero editing to this episode. Zero. Like, it's amazing. That's awesome. No, I'm not professionally trained, but I've been sober for 12 years, and I've spoken quite a bit. And, you know, I'm a yoga teacher. This is what I do. And I talk about this stuff. I'm so lucky. Oh, my God. So what is it like for me today? I am so lucky because I get to share this. I share all of these tenets of recovery whether I'm speaking to someone in recovery or not, because when you're talking about yoga, you're talking about all the same things, being present, being honest, right? All the tenets of yoga, showing up for others, being of service to other people, staying out of the ego, remembering you're part of a collective, but especially the somatics of being present, connecting to breath and body and all of those beautiful things so that you can feel whole, that you can feel whole. And so I get to talk about that stuff every day. So wow. yeah, it probably flows 
easily because I, I have the privilege of talking about it all the time. What is life today? I mean, before COVID. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, we don't have to talk about what it's like today during COVID because it's, it's actually very scary for me today. But before COVID, I was living a life that I was proud of. I mean, I still am. Don't get me wrong. Of course. Um, you know, my son has never seen me drunk. My son has no idea that that woman existed. You know, my relationship with him means everything to me. My relationship with my parents has mended in ways that I never could have imagined because, you know, I mean, I was one of those um, typical addicts, even in early recovery, that was like, you know, if you had my life, you would drink too. And it was always somebody else's fault, right? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, today, it, it couldn't be any further from the truth. You know, I'm able to own my part in what I had a part in, which is all of my using, by the way. And then as far as my childhood is concerned, I've really been able to reconcile the fact that they did the best they could with what they had. It was limited. And certainly the only one who's going to suffer by holding on to that stuff is me. You know, so I, uh, my relationships, you know, in my family have never been stronger. And I do something every day that I love, you know, sharing the message, as I said, of yoga, and yes, you know, sharing the message of recovery. I do have sponsees that I work with. I do have private clients that are in recovery. So we do uh, specifically work with with that. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, life, I am very blessed. Life is very good.